On today's episode of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast, we'll be talking about the Bruins and their second round elimination at the hands of the New York Islanders and what went wrong for the Bruins in their series. Um, and we will also take a look at the Bruins offseason, quick little um, preview of free agents and what's to come. So I'll give you my take on some of those free agents that I think should return or shouldn't. Um, we will also get into an update from the Stanley Cup playoffs as the semifinals are set, so we'll take a look at both of those series. Um, we will also take a look at some news and notes from around the NHL, including some um, awards that uh, finalists have been announced for. Um, then we will talk about the Celtics and talk about their continuing coaching search and any updates from that. We'll also give you um, some thoughts on Kemba Walker and his future with the Celtics, as there are reports that both he and the Celtics are considering a split up so we'll get into that we will also get into some other updates from around the nbas the playoffs are still in full swing second round is underway so we'll update you guys on some of the series going on we'll take a look at some news and notes from around the nba we will get to some mlb talk about the red sox and their recent sweep in new york we'll also talk about their recent struggles against the astros we'll take a look ahead at what's next for the team um, and then we will also take a look at some news and notes from around Major League Baseball and the Red Sox as uh, Chris Sale seems to be getting a little bit closer to returning. And then we will get to the NFL, take a look at the Patriots uh, minicamp updates as uh, Dante Hightower has returned. We'll talk about Mac Jones and Cam Newton in the quarterback situation. Uh, we will talk about the Titans getting Julio Jones in a trade, so we'll talk about what that means for them. Um, I'll also take a look at some news and notes from around the NFL, and then we will get to an update on the WNBA, and then we will also talk about the UEFA Euro Ch European Championship. That uh, tournament starts today, so let's go. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden, and there's a lot on uh, this week's podcast. Going to get a lot into the Bruins, a lot into the Red Sox, little Celtics, little Patriots, all kinds of stuff going on. Um, but first, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at NotBoston. You can follow us on Facebook and you can listen on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. So, um, unfortunately, this is a little early, a little earlier than I thought that I would be doing a uh, postmortem on the Bruins, as I as I've said before. Um, that um, I didn't think it was going to be this early. I'll be honest. Um, I think that looking at this series and looking at you know how it went the first three games. The Bruins seemed to be not in total control, but, you know, seemingly up two games to one. And the only games that they had lost to the, in the playoffs 
to that point had been overtime games. You know, yeah, of course the Bruins felt like they let they let one slip away in game two against the Islanders. Um, and I think unfortunately it was kind of the beginning of the end. Some people I think just didn't even see see it coming that, you know, the Bruins really that was their opportunity to, you know, get this series over with and, you know, credit to the Islanders. They they got that overtime win. The Bruins were able to get that overtime win in game three. That was huge. Um, but then, you know, the whole series just changed in game four. Um, Islanders just were the better team than the Bruins. You know, Bruins lose Carlo in, I think it was the second period of game four. They lose that game 4-1 series is tied. And, you know, you're thinking, okay, Bruins go back home and, you know, lo and behold, they play uh, probably not 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 a good enough game in, in game five um, and then followed it up with, you know, one of their worst performances of this season in Game 6. So, you know, Bruins go out on a three-game losing streak, first time all season that they had lost three in a row. And I think just going back to my original point, you know, at the beginning of the series, I didn't think the Islanders were going to create that many issues for the Bruins. You know, I thought that they're probably not the matchup that you want. You know, I think the Bruins most would have liked to play Pittsburgh. Um, but it wasn't like you looked at this Islanders team and you were concerned that this team was going to beat you, but, you know, things happened. You know, the Bruins, unfortunately, ran into some big-time problems on defense. You know, losing Carlo really ended up kind of being the beginning of the end for the Bruins, that, you know, you thrust Jeremy Lozon, you know, Mike Riley, Jared Tenorti into, you know, roles that just were too big for them. Um, and I think that the Bruins just unfortunately got exposed. You know, penalty kill was not where it needed to be in game in game five. Um, and sure, you know, did the Bruins, were the Bruins on the short end of the stick on a number of calls in games five and six? You know, sure. I think that that's fair. You know, I think that there were some calls that were a little questionable. There were some plays that, you know, the Islanders make that didn't get called and it was, you know, was, was difficult. But, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say the Bruins lost this series because of officiating. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that. And I think that if anyone is sitting here and saying that, you know, you need to have a reality check. Um, because the Islanders just were the better team than the Bruins. You know, that's really what happened in this series, that, you know, the Islanders exposed the Bruins and, you know, exposed them that they really did not have enough defensive depth to be able to withstand the Islanders in their physical play especially after Carlo gets hurt. And I know that some people want to go back to the Chara thing. I'm not going to have that conversation because we've had this conversation on this podcast a million times, so I'm not going to get into it again. But, you know, it was undoubtedly just too difficult for, for the defense to, to recover after losing Carlo. And, you know, I think that, when you have a guy like Matt Grizzlick playing with Charlie McAvoy, you know, I know that there's been some conversation in the last two days about, oh, the Bruins need, you know, bigger defensemen and this and that, which I agree to, to a point. You know, I still think that Grizzlick can be a very good number one pair defenseman, but you need to have more of a safety net than what the Bruins had at the end of this series. You know, when your second pair is Mike Riley and Jeremy Lozon, you know, I, I don't care who you're playing. You're not going to be in a great spot if those two guys are playing top top pair minutes. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, I think it maybe just was the Bruins did address the defense at the trade deadline, but maybe it just wasn't enough. You know, the Bruins clearly just were out overmatched, you know, against the Islanders and the Islanders made them pay for it, you know, and it just uh, was not what I was expecting. You know, I think that, again, you look at this series on paper, you thought the Bruins, maybe the Islanders give them a bit of a series, but you figured the Bruins would win in the end. So, you know, it's it's disappointing. You know, I think that a lot of us figured that the Bruins would be going deep into the playoffs, at least going to the semifinals. But, you know, it is what it is. It happens. You know, things don't always go the way that you want them to and are planned or planned plan to. And, you know, this is this is where the Bruins are. But I think that really the two biggest things in this series, you know, the, the lack of defensive depth and, you know, the bottom six just didn't give you anything. And that really, to me, was the biggest glaring issue in this series. And I'll be perfectly honest. I didn't think that the bottom six was going to be this much of an issue that you were going to lose the series largely because of it. I really thought that the Bruins should be able to beat the Islanders if their top two lines are playing the way that they should. And in fairness, Taylor Hall did not have the best series. I still think you should re-sign him. Um, But I think that you know, you looked at that top line. They did about as much as, as you can expect. Um, I know that maybe some people think that they should have done better, but it's like, you got to give the Islanders credit. You know, their defensemen were really, really good. Scott Mayfield was one of the best players in this series. He was really good for the Islanders. Pelik and Pulak were really good. You know, it's it just, it just ended up being too much for their bottom six, and they couldn't get enough scoring and you know it just was it it just was unfortunate that you know it seemed like Jake DeBrusque was going to break out of the season slump when he scored in the first two games of the Capitals series and you know it just it never really it never really materialized into anything for him and you know Nick Ritchie they his effectiveness wore off you know you did barely noticed him in the playoffs he had one assist in this series you know and those are two guys that you know, you expect are going to be able to help you scoring-wise. Now, Richie's not a guy that I think you expect him to score a lot of goals, but at least give you something, you know, at least for DeBrusque, give you something. And, you know, I know that a lot of people want to say Charlie Coyle wasn't good enough this year, and you're probably right, but you also have to consider he really wasn't playing with consistent line mates pretty much all season, you know, and... I think DeBrusque and Richie really lost a lot of their effectiveness to the point that you had to put Carson Kuhlman in the lineup for the last two games of the series. Um, and the fourth line just, I think, needs to be completely refigured. You know, Corrali just completely lost his effectiveness. I don't know. I don't know what happened to him and DeBrusque. Like, I don't know why they just completely lost a lot of their effectiveness. You know, Jake DeBrusque, it's rare for him to play with the confidence that he had, say, two years ago. Now, I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, you know, maybe it's a, a pandemic issue that he's having, you know, confidence issues. And I get all that. I totally do. You know, and believe me, I think that when you're not playing with a lot of confidence, it really affects you, you know, and I think that that's legit. But, you know, at the same time, it's been a good amount of time that he's not really been the same player. So it's not just been since the shutdown last year. You know, there were issues long before that, in my opinion. So it remains to be seen what happens next for him and Richie. 
Um, you know, Richie's a free agent. Be very curious to see if the Bruins, you know, re-sign him. You know, I think that there are arguments to be made either way. You know, I think that he performed well in the regular season here. You know, um, did you a pretty good job on the power play unit as a net front guy, but he disappeared in the playoffs. He didn't really do, didn't really have much effectiveness. You know, didn't even do much, you know, in the hitting department. You know, you figure that, okay, he's a guy that, Maybe he doesn't help you out score a lot of goals, but at least you have to be effective enough enough to be uh, someone that can that can lay a hit that can change the complexion of a game. But you never saw that from him, so you know I think that there are arguments on both sides. I'd be very surprised if Jake DeBrusque is in a Bruins uniform at the start of training camp next season. Um, I think that unfortunately, I just think that he's he's ran out of time here, and I think that unfortunately he is you know, trending downward. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that if they do try to trade him, they might not be able to get the best value that they're hoping for. But, you know, I think that, yes, it was the bottom six that really kind of let you down, didn't really do enough. And, you know, the biggest difference to me in this series, the Islanders were able to roll all four of their lines and use them at all times, you know, and not worry about, oh, what you're going to get from this these different lines. And the Bruins had two lines that you could put out there and not worry about. And that, to me, made the difference. Now, I know that the Islanders took advantage of the Bruins defensively, and I think that that's legit. I don't think that, you know, Tuca played particularly well at the end of this series in 5 and 6, but I think that when you look at games 3 and 4, he was pretty good. You know, I think that, unfortunately, mostly the D let him down in 5 and 6. Did he play as well as he absolutely could have? You know, probably not, but... You know, I think that this is not a series that you put on him, you know, and I think that, again, and I've probably said this on this podcast, I've said this to people plenty of times, that Bruins fans that, you know, dump on Tuca are, you know, are so mesmerized by what Tim Thomas did in 2011 that, you know, they think that that is like the bar for good goaltending, which it's not. You know, you look at that postseason run, that's one of the greatest postseason runs in the history of, in the history of the NHL. And people think that that's like the bar, that if you don't meet that bar, then you suck. And it's just unfortunate that that's what it has to be. And people, you know, have to dump on Tuca for, you know, quote unquote, not showing up in big games, you know, not not having the right commitment. Well, news for you guys, he played through a torn labrum. So I don't want to hear ever again that he his commitment isn't good enough. Like, that's just insane. I think that there are a lot of people in this town that root for him to fail. And I think that that's really honestly pathetic to a point where it's like, I don't know why you would even root for a, a sports team if you root for someone's failure. Like, I think that's just kind of, you should have a reality check with yourself if you're going to put yourself in a mind pretzel where you're going to say, you know, Tuca playing through an injury, that's selfish, you know, but if he doesn't play, then he's weak. And it's just like, you've heard teammates, you know, the Bruins have had some exit interviews earlier today. And, you know, Charlie Coyle, Brad Marchand, David Pasternak have come to his defense and say that, you know, the amount of flack that he gets is, 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 is insane. And it's just like, that's where it should stop. You have teammates that say, we trust this guy and he's our guy. I don't think you really need to be saying anything else, but, you know, you got to get clicks and you got to get attention in this town. Because that's the only way you get by. Um, so I just think that it's it, it's unfortunate that I think that 
it's become such a huge narrative and it's just destroyed people taking a look at really what the real problems are with this team, you know, that you just want to say blame the goaltending. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's frustrating, but I think that, yeah, I don't think he played great at the end of this series, but I think that the defense didn't help him out either. You know, going to Jeremy Swayman in game five didn't really do, didn't really do much of anything. You know, he let in a goal and there were some people, you know, screaming for him to play in game six. And, you know, it's like, you really got to think about whether you really trust a rookie goaltender playing in a must-win game in the playoffs after not having played for, you know, before he came in in game five, he hadn't played in over a month. And it's just like, I don't know how you can expect that a rookie goaltender is just going to magically do better. Um, so, you know, it's it's unfortunate. You know, the Bruins, I think, just got exposed in areas that I think they weren't thinking that they were going to get exposed this early. You know, I figured that you get through this Islanders series and maybe you go up against Tampa Bay and Tampa Bay beats you. And I think, you know, it, at the Bruins team at their best might not even be able to beat Tampa Bay. So, you know, I think that you didn't expect that the Islanders were going to be a team that were going to expose you like this. But then again, the Islanders had success against the Bruins this season and it kind of came back around. So it's just... Um, it's it's frustrating because you felt like this team should have done more. Um, you know, it's it's really disappointing. You know, I think that I'm not going to beat around the bush and say, oh, you know, it's not that bad. No, it is pretty bad. You know, you lose to a team that you probably should have beaten. You know, and I know that you lose Carlo, and that was really tough about halfway through the series. But, you know, you still expected that the Bruins were going to give you some type of effort, and they did give you some effort. You know, in Game 5, the comeback came up short, but it really just seemed like the series was over after Game 4, and I think maybe some of us wanted to kid ourselves and think the Bruins were were fine, but, you know, that really ended up being the turning point in the series. Um, And, you know, if you want to go back to Tuca, he played excellent in Game 4. He wasn't the reason why they lost that game. So, you know, it's, it's frustrating. So I think, you know, looking forward into the off season, you know, I think as you, as you maybe just take a look at some point totals from this series, uh, Bruins, you know, got a lot from Marshan and Pasternak, both had nine points. They led the series, you know, McAvoy was excellent in this series, had seven points. Uh, Krejci had two goals and five assists. Bergeron had five points in six games. But beyond that, you didn't really get anything from, you know, Taylor Hall, Craig Smith. They both had two points in 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 the series Um, and then you look at the islanders and this is really what made the difference you look at the islanders having you know a bunch of forwards that had four or five or six points which isn't a lot but it's like when you look at palmieri had six points barzal pajot had six points you had bailey everly with five nelson bovillier with four you know you can roll all four of those lines and they can give you a little bit of something the only Islanders that didn't record a point in this series were Andy Green and Matt Martin. Everyone else recorded a point. You know, the Bruins had Jake DeBrusque, no points in five games. You know, Lazar, Wagner, Corrali, no points. You know, and it's not like you expect them to score a lot of goals, but even to give you something, Bruins got one goal from Taylor Hall, one goal from Craig Smith. You know, it just is unfortunate that, you know, it seemed like the Bruins were going to be we're going to be okay, but I really think that third line really let them down. And, 
I think that that's something that I hope that they personally overhaul um, and, and take another look at because I think that for you to be a successful team, you need to be able to roll four lines. You know, that's how teams win. That's how this team won in 2011. You know, you had four lines you could put out there at any situation and you would not have to worry about them. So I think that, you know, it's it's unfortunate it had to end this way, but I think that, you know, you got to make the necessary changes. And I think that, you know, this offseason is going to be, it's it's going to be a lot. You know, I think that there are a lot of things that could possibly change, and it's a really a key offseason, I think, for the future of your franchise. Um, and I know that there are some people that think that, you know, Sweeney, Neely, some of the front office people deserve to lose their jobs, and maybe they're not wrong there. But I also think, you know, is it really going to solve anything? You know, and to those people, you know, I will directly ask them if, you want to get rid of Sweeney and Neely. You want to bring in someone like Jeff Gordon, who used to run the Bruins. You know, what's 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 the plan? Because let me tell you, Jeff Gordon ran the Rangers for a few years, and I'll tell you exactly what he did: is he traded popular players for draft picks, and they rebuilt for about two or three years. Now they're in pretty good shape right now, but some Bruins fans that want both of those guys fired, you better be prepared for a rebuild then. I don't really think people have fully grasped, you know, what that means in bringing in a new general manager like a Jeff Gordon, who's absolutely going to trade some guys. And I'm talking about Bergeron. I'm talking about Martian. I'm talking about, you know, guys that are going to be dealt to be to rebuild. So, you know, I hope that you're ready to be bad for two or three years because that's exactly what's going to happen. So, you know, that's kind of my answer to those people that want people in the front office to be, to be fired. Now, has Sweeney done the best job at drafting? No, absolutely not. You look at some draft picks the Bruins have had in the last, you know, four or five years, it's not really been good enough. You know, they haven't really had enough in the pipeline, specifically at the forward group, that's going to be able to help you, you know, turn over your older veterans. The Bruins have had a really hard time developing, you know, top-end scoring talent in the draft. And, you know, I think that Sweeney and Neely are kind of at the top of the board in terms of blame for that. You know, I think it's a certain type of player the Bruins are looking for. And it's like, I think the Bruins tend to overthink things and tend to look at guys that, you know, play a certain way and they need to start thinking with the modern day NHL and get as many guys as you can that can help you score. Because you're not going to be going anywhere if you're try if you're drafting you know, third, fourth line grinders like Trent Frederick. Sure, that sure they drafted McAvoy, but it's like they've not really had a lot of hits in the last couple of years. And so that's where I think that maybe the Bruins could utilize a fresh set of eyes on the organization. But I also just think if you're going to do that, you better be prepared for a new general manager to come in and trade popular players because that's exactly what happened with the Rangers. Sure, they're in good shape now, but they weren't very good for a couple of years. So... You know, I think looking into the offseason and what it's going to mean, I mean, I think that obviously at the top of the list are three guys, Taylor Hall, David Krejci, and Tuka Rask, that I think are most important. And, you know, based on what we've heard this morning that, you know, Tuka played through a torn labrum, and, you know, if he does require surgery, he'll most likely be out until the middle of next season. So, you know, I think that all signs point to the Bruins re-signing him because he's said and he's made it clear that 
you know, he's not playing for any other franchise except for the Bruins. So, you know, I think that it would be smart to re-sign him for a year or two, um, maybe two, you know, if he's going to miss half the season next year. Um, and you kind of ease in Jeremy Swayman, which I think is the smartest idea, is, is the smarter idea than just straight up giving Swayman the keys right now. He played 10 games last year, or this past year, 10 or 12 games. I can't remember what it was, but you cannot look like you cannot look me in the face and tell me that you have confidence in him to play a full NHL season. I think you're crazy if that if you think that. Um, so I think they bring Tuca back, but it's not going to be at a lot of money. You know, it might be four or five million for two years, something like that, where he's not going to get paid a lot of money. He's just going to be there as kind of the the st- stabilizing force until the Bruins feel like Jeremy Swayman is ready. So. You know, with that news, it tells me that there's a possibility that they could bring Halak back. Now, I didn't think that there was a possibility that they would, but I think that obviously, hearing the news that Tuka might have to miss half the season, you might want to think about re-signing Halak just so that you can have some NHL quality, NHL caliber goaltending to be in there the first the first half of the season. Um, because I don't think Swayman and Vladar is going to be enough. I think that you need a vet. Now, is it Halak or is it someone the Bruins signed? I mean, I think regardless of whoever it is, it's Halak or it's, you know, someone that you can find like a James Reimer or uh, Devin Dubnik or someone that can just come in and play. Doesn't have to be, you know, really good, can just be kind of an average NHL goaltender. And that's really going to test some Bruins fans who think Tuca sucks. You know, wait till they sign someone like that and you guys get on, you know, one of those guys and you really see what bad goaltending looks like. Um, So I think that, you know, something I could see happening is the Bruins let Halak go, bring in a vet goaltender, and then try to flip that goaltender at the deadline because there are always teams that look for goaltending at the deadline. So I think you could do something like that. Um, But I think that it's interesting, you know, that I think, all signs point to the Bruins bringing back Tuka Rask. And I think there's a possibility that Halak returns. Um, in terms of the defense, you know, obviously Mike Riley is the big one. We'll get to um, Hall and Krejci in a moment. Um, you know, Mike Riley's interesting. I think that he's due for a bit of an upgrade. I thought that he was solid with the Bruins, you know, at a really good start. I didn't think he was too great in the playoffs. Like, I thought that he unfortunately you know, had to have a bigger role after Carlo got hurt. And I don't really know if he was as effective. Um, you know, I think that, again, like Richie, I think there are pros and cons to bringing him back. You know, I think the pro is he gives you someone that's a good puck mover, but, you know, you have to have more of a safety net than Brandon Carlo, who's now becoming someone who has a bit of an injury history, has a concussion history. And, you know, Kevin Miller, someone who, had knee injuries, and it's unfortunate with him because he had those knee injuries, made it back, was in the playoffs, and then, you know, gets hurt on a dirty hit by Orlov and has to miss the rest of the playoffs, which he ended up missing the rest of the playoffs. So you need to have more, you need to have more than just those two guys. So um, I think that I would, I kind of go back and forth on re-signing Riley because I think he's good enough as an offensive defenseman, but at the same time, I felt like he kind of let you down defensively at the end of this series when, you know, he got a lot of ice time. So 
you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they signed him. I also wouldn't be surprised if they let him go. He's kind of someone that I think really could go either way. Um, Kevin Miller, I would be shocked if the Bruins re-signed him. Um, you know, I think that, God bless him, he tried. You know, he played decently well when he was in, when he was healthy. But I think that, you know, it's clear the Bruins need more stability on the back end. And I just don't think he's someone that you can count on. Um, Carlo is also up for a new contract. I think that he gets re-signed because he's been really, he was very good when healthy, you know, when he was in the lineup. So I think that he's worth re-signing. Not sure how much he's going to get. I mean, he got paid uh, $2.85 million over the last two years, which is pretty solid. So, you know, maybe something in the threes, but I wouldn't expect that he gets a lot more money. Um, you know, Camper's unrestricted, Tenorti's unrestricted. Be very surprised if they brought back either of those guys. Um, and then the forwards. We'll get to Krejci, and we'll get to Taylor Hall. Um, I think Taylor Hall, you got to re-sign him. I think that there really shouldn't be any question about that. I know that people want to point to, oh, he didn't show up in the Islanders series. Well, I still think he's worth re-signing um, because you saw him and David Krejci play so well together. And I think Taylor's made it clear that he wants to stay here. And I think that, you know, he made some comments that make it sound like he kind of doesn't really care about making money and just kind of wants to be with a winning team. So I think that you see him sign a four or five year deal um, in the offseason to remain in Boston somewhere between five and six, maybe a little bit over six. But, you know, I think that the important thing is he wants to be here. And I think that you can't possibly say no to that. And also, you know, I think that if you do, you know, don't re-sign him, you know, what what else are you going to do? So I really think that there's no option other than to re-sign him. You know, as far as Krejci, I know that he's getting up there, but he had a really good year this year, you know, and played even better when Hall came in. I really just think that there's no reason to not re-sign both of these guys. You know, David made, you know, $7.25 million over the last six, seven years, whatever it was. He's not going to make that much money this time around. You know, it's a possibility that, you know, maybe you give him two years for, you know, $10 million, two years for, for eight, you know, something like that. I think that it'd be reasonable to bring him back because I also think, you know, if this goes back to kind of the drafting and the developing the Bruins really don't have much center depth, you know, in the organization. And so you let Krejci go, are you really going to, are you really confident in Charlie Coyle being that second line center? I think that the answer is no at the moment. Um, and also, you know, you got to think about Bergeron. He's got a year left on his deal after this offseason. So um, I think that there's no reason to not sign, re-sign Krejci and Hall. That's just what I'm going to think at this point. Um Sean Corrali, I don't think he's coming back. I think that the Bruins are going to be more than happy to let him walk. Um, I do honestly think that there's going to be a team out there that overpays for him. Um, you have Greg McKegg, didn't really play too much for the Bruins this season, so I don't imagine he returns. Zach Senishin is due for a restricted free agent deal, um, as is Trent Frederick, so that'll be interesting to take a, take a look at that. And then you have Richie, and you have uh, Andre Kasha, who... I don't think the Bruins really have any reason to, to re-sign him. And I think that um, a point someone made on Twitter um, is that maybe it would be better for him to, to just hang it up and retire um, because he's had quite a bit of concussion issue, issues and upper body injuries that, you know, caused him to miss a lot of time. You know, missed almost the entire season this year. So 
I don't think that it's smart for the Bruins to bring him back, you know, and Richie, I think, is another guy that I go back and forth on because I think that he serves a purpose, but, you know, he didn't really show you much in the playoffs, and it's his second straight year that, you know, he's not really shown up. Now, I know that, you know, last season was different, you know, maybe you get cut him a little bit of slack for last year, you know, after being traded to the Bruins, missing, you know, five months of the season, then having to come back and play in the summer, um, but really just was not effective in the playoffs. So I don't think the Bruins should re-sign him, but I do kind of have this feeling that they might. Um, but they have to be very careful not to give him a you know unreasonable contract um, that they're going to regret paying. So, you know, I think it's going to be an offseason for the Bruins. It's going to be interesting. You know, I think that what I would like them to do is, you know, see if you can get see what you can get for Jake DeBrusque. You know, see if you can move him and try to get perhaps another defenseman. Um, that, I think, would be would be my vote. I think I would go for re-signing Mike Riley if it's a reasonable deal. You know, if some team comes out and offers Mike Riley a five-year deal, you know, worth $4.5 million or $5 million or something like that, the Bruins absolutely should not re-sign him to something like that. I know that he's 27, but I just think that that would be a little too risky. So I think if it's reasonable, they should bring back um, Mike Riley. You know, I think that if it's fairly reasonable on Nick Ritchie, I think possibly bring him back. Um, But I think you really need to figure out what it is you're doing with the bottom six. You know, are you going to give Jack Studnika a look at center? Are you going to play him on the wing with Coyle? You know, do you possibly move Craig Smith back down to play with Coyle? You know, who knows? Um, I think that Trent Frederick is someone that absolutely needs to take advantage of an opportunity. Um, Curtis Lazar is still under contract, so, you know, he's not going to be going anywhere. Um, but I think me personally, I'd love to see Trent Frederick take um, take an opportunity, assuming that Corrali doesn't come back and you see him on the fourth line on opening night next year. So, it's an interesting offseason, a lot of decisions to think about. Um, you know, don't think that the Bruins are going to do anything really crazy in free agency. You know, I think that Hall and Krejci are two most important offensive guys, you know, and then there's the goaltending question about um, what do you do? Do you bring back Halak? Do you bring in another veteran? You know, we'll see. So if you want to hear any other Bruins thoughts, you know, just shoot me a DM, shoot me a text. Um, really, I'm open to open to anything. Um, so we'll move on. We'll talk about the uh, two semifinal series the Islanders and the Lightning will play on, I believe, Sunday. So a couple days before that series starts. So Tampa Bay, obviously, um, a little too much for uh, Carolina in the second round series. I have to say that. I was a little confused as to why Peter Morazic was uh, chosen to play in the middle of the series where Carolina kind of lost it. You know, they lost the series, in my opinion, in game four. You know, a game that they're going into it down two to one. There are a lot of goals scored. They get Andre Vasilevsky on an off day, and Morazic gives up six goals. And it just, like, they cost themselves in that series. They really did. I think that you know, you have a goalie who's as good as Andre Vasilevsky, you know, probably is the best goalie in the league. I don't really think there's a convert, there's a conversation there. Um, and so, 
you get that goalie on an off day and you score four times, you absolutely cannot let Tampa Bay score six goals in that game. And if you look at some of those goals Mrazek let in, that's bad goaltending. My God, you think Rask was bad. Please take a look at that film from game four and just come and report back to me because that was really bad. He cost them that series, I think. Um, I'm not really sure why Nedeljkovic didn't play in that game. I don't know if there was an injury or something, but uh, Tampa Bay wins a series in five and they're playing the Islanders. And I think that, you know, it's going to be a series that I think might be about the same as last year. You know, I think that the Islanders, good, solid defensive team, good, solid goaltending, but you know, when you're playing a team like Tampa, you got to get the goals from somewhere. And I think that, sure, Palmieri had a really good series against the Bruins. Barzal really seemed to, you know, get get in the groove in the middle of that series and kind of took over. Um, but they need those guys to produce, you know, or else Tampa Bay is winning this series in five games. Um, you know, they're going to need to get consistent point production from Brock Nelson, Anthony Beauvillier, Josh Bailey, I think specifically that line. Um but I think that this is going to be a good, solid series. You know, I think the Islanders could possibly win it, but, you know, I think that they got to be at their absolute best. You know, I think that they were very close to their absolute best against the Bruins um, in that series. And, you know, Varlamov was really good. And I think that um, he's a guy that I think could steal a game or two in this series, but you know, it's Tampa Bay's series to lose, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, they've really had no issues at all. You know, I know that Florida gave them a pretty good series, but Carolina, I just think, made some really critical errors that ended up, you know, losing them the series. You know, Tampa Bay is a team that obviously they can score, but they have a lot of good depth in their lines too. So I think I'm curious to see how the Islanders react to Tampa Bay, you know, being able to roll pretty much four lines. The Bruins really could do that in this series. Um, but you have guys like Alex Kalorn, who has 12 points in 11 games. You know, you have Sorelli, Coleman, Ross Colton. You have some guys who, you know, are not top-end talent guys, but they put up good, solid points. I mean, you have a guy like Andre Palat, who's not even really found his groove. And you have Point and Stamkos, who are just... You know, Braden Point to me is the best player on this team. And it's like he's almost an afterthought when you consider Stamkos and Kucherov. Um, And then you obviously got Hedman, who's been really good in the playoffs, um, is a finalist for the the Norris Trophy. We'll get into that in a moment. Um, And then you have Vasilevsky, who's been just excellent. So um, I think Tampa Bay wins the series in six. I think it goes about the same as last year's series. I think that unless... Varlamov plays out of his mind, they're not going to win this series, uh, meaning the Islanders. But I do think that um, they're going to make this series somewhat interesting. I don't think that it's going to be like a sweep or five games. I think the Islanders win a couple games. But I think Nassau Coliseum will get closed after this series. Um, And then you have the Montreal Canadiens sweeping the Jets, and wow, what a run for the Canadians. They have won seven straight games after losing three of their first four games in the in the um, Toronto series. Uh, Tyler Toffoli has been outstanding. Um, Eric Stahl and Corey Perry 
you know, uh, turning back the clock from that 2003 legendary draft. The two of them are playing really well. And, you know, Carey Price is just uh, doing what he always does, is just play ridiculously well in the playoffs. And, you know, really one of the biggest reasons why they're in the spot that they are. Um, But I think that, you know, they take advantage of a Toronto team that I still think is just kind of in their own heads, to be perfectly honest. Um, And I think it's going to stay that way until they win a first-round series. And the Montreal Canadiens just took advantage of them and took advantage of kind of an overmatched Winnipeg team. And, you know, I think Winnipeg lost the series the minute that Mark Shifley decided to, you know, take that hit on on Evans. And I think that really changed the series um, completely. That took him out of the series um, and it was unfortunate that he got some, you know, heat or well, his family got some heat for his hit, which is totally disrespectful and just totally not necessary it was a dirty hit, but it's like, you don't need to go that far. Um, so, but Montreal has been, has been excellent. You know, I think they're, again, you know, you see it almost every postseason that there is a team that people think that they really can't get out of the first round and lo and behold, they get pretty far. So they've been playing pretty well. I don't think that they can beat Vegas. I think that Vegas has caught their stride winning four straight in that Colorado series. They won the series last night. Um, And it's crazy. Colorado just really just got bowled over by this Vegas team who, you know, really just kind of, limped through that first round, you know, really barely got out of that first round against against uh, Minnesota. They dropped the first two games against Colorado. Now, granted, I didn't think the series was over after they lost the first two games, but I was like, okay, maybe this team really isn't that good, but holy cow, they've been unbelievable in these last four games, ripping off four straight wins. You have March or so, Riley Smith and Car- Carlson, playing at the level that they played three years ago when they made the final. Um, and then you got Flurry, who's turning back the clock, speaking of turning back the clock. In that 0-3 draft, how ironic is that? He's been just as good, if not better, than Carey Price in the playoffs. So the goaltending matchup is going to be really interesting to see. Um, but Vegas, you know, a lot like the Islanders, can roll four lines and really can get production from pretty much everyone in the lineup. Um, So I think they're very dangerous. I think Montreal is a team that you need to, you know, take advantage of them and keep them down. They've been a very hard team to keep down, but it is interesting. You have two of the hottest teams in the playoffs that are playing each other in this second round. So I think that one kind of X factor is going to be the crowd. You know, Montreal has played in largely empty buildings in the first two rounds. Sure that there were some fans in Montreal, um, I think, toward the end of the Maple Leaf series. Um, but playing in a full, rocking building like Vegas, I think, is going to be a little bit of a cult. That, it's going to be a little bit of a shock for them. So I think that um, Vegas very well could take a 2-0 lead in this series, but Montreal takes his one game, and you can plant that seed of doubt. So um, Vegas, keep the good times rolling, but you, know, you have Montreal, who's won seven straight games. So it's like... You have two teams that are playing unbelievably well. Really, the two hottest teams in the playoffs, as I just said. Um, 
I think Vegas wins the series, but I don't think Montreal goes away quietly. Um, I think that you're going to see Vegas and Tampa Bay win these series. Um, I think that they're the two best teams um, in the playoffs. Well, Montreal might have something to say about that, but I think looking top to bottom at both Vegas and Tampa Bay, I think that it's both of their series to lose. Um, So it should be interesting. Montreal and Vegas starts on uh, Monday night at 9 o'clock in Las Vegas. So definitely take a look at that. So before we move on to the NBA, move on to Celtics, talk about some uh, awards in the NHL that are up for grabs. You have the um, Jack Adams Award, which goes to the best head coach, and the finalists were announced yesterday. Dean Evason for the Wild, Rod Brindamore for the Hurricanes, and Joel Quinville for the Panthers. I think it's a fairly easy, fairly easy choice. I think that you know Evason was really good with this Minnesota team. I don't think anyone expected anything from them. Pushed Vegas to seven games in the first round. Um, they really had a tremendous season. So I think he's my pick. You know, I think Quenville did really well with Florida. Um, you know, Brenda Moore, I think, deserves recognition. But I just think you have Carolina, who I think is already a really good team. Like, I think that, I think me personally, I take into account what the team was and what the expectations were at the beginning of the season. And I think that Everson really kind of exceeded those. I think that the Hurricanes did about as well as you would expect. You know, they're a really, really good team. And I think that they did really, really well. So, you know, I don't know if it's really... I mean, yeah, I think that's just that's just the way that, that, that I view it. Um, for the... Uh, Hart Memorial Trophy, which is the which is the league MVP, Nathan McKinnon, Austin Matthews, Connor McDavid. I think that all three of those guys had tremendous seasons. You know, Matthews led the league in goals. McDavid was the best player on the ice. I mean, I don't think that there's really even a conversation that needs to go on with the with the Hart Trophy. I think that McDavid is a guy that should absolutely win it. You know, without really much, without with, with without really much conversation um looking at the calder trophy which is the rookie of the year you had uh jason robertson for dallas nadelkovic for carolina and then kirill kirill kaprizov for uh, minnesota i think kaprizov wins that don't really think that that's much of a conversation um looking at the norris trophy that was something i was going to get to with um, adam fox kale mccarr and victor hedman being being uh, finalists. So, you know, I think that Hedman is a very good defenseman. I think that he's one of the better guys in the league, but I think that there were plenty of other guys who are better than him this season. Um, I think that, I don't know why he's a finalist. You know, maybe it just seems like it's obvious because he's just really big, has a big reach, but I just feel like there were some other players that were possibly better than him. Like I thought, not to be biased here, but I thought that McAvoy was really tremendous this season and kind of deserves a little bit more recognition. Uh, me personally, I think Adam Fox should win the award. I think that he did the most with the least, you know, led the league, led led all defensemen in points, um, and also, you know, didn't really have as much of a kind of big supporting cast as Hedman and McCarr do. Um, and Kale McCarr, it's not to say that he's not good, but I think that when you look at the guys that he's playing with, 
He's playing with Nathan McKinnon, Rantanen, you know, some of the... I mean, to me, top to bottom, Colorado is the most talented team in the league this year. Um, sure, Adam Fox, you know, has guys like Panarin and Zibanejad, but I just think that he's he come he came a long way this season, um, and I think that he I think he deserves to win. Now, I think Hedman's probably going to win because, you know, I think that the NHL tends to kind of just go with popularity at this point with certain awards. Um, but I think that Adam Fox should win. Um, as far as the Selkie Trophy, you have Bergeron, uh, Barkov, and Mark Stone that were nominated. Um, I think it was... I think it was Couturier that won last season. Um, you know, to me, Barkov had a really good season. I thought that Stone, you know, as a winger, is probably the best defensive winger in the game. Um, but I also thought, you know, Bergeron, when you look at when you look at what he did, you know, and you consider him being the captain, you know, being there without Chara, um, you know, was unbelievable in in faceoffs. You know, third in defensive faceoff percentage, first in total faceoffs won. You know, first among Bruins forwards, block shots and shorthanded time on ice. You know, had a lot of takeaways too. So I think, to me, again. I think that I'll just say this as I say for every award. Like, I think that, you know, I don't think, me personally, I don't think you need an award to validate how good you really are. Like, I think that if the if fans and people recognize, you know, who is really good, like, who wins the award, I don't think really matters a lot. I mean, I know that it does because it's big recognition, but it's just like, because I, I don't know, I can feel that Bergeron might not win the Selkie Award, and I think some people might take it a little bit personally, and I think it's just it's just awards. Like, awards oftentimes don't go to the right people. Like I just said with Victor Hedman, he'll probably win the Norris Trophy, but by no means does it mean he should have. You know, if Connor McDavid wins the MVP, you know, is he really the most valuable player in the league? You know, maybe not. Maybe someone could make an argument. I think he's the best player in the league. Best and most valuable does not mean the same thing. Um, But I just think it's just awards, you know, really doesn't matter all that much. You know, I think that we already know that Bergeron's an excellent defensive forward. We don't need a fifth Selkie trophy to to tell you that. Um, But again, you know, it's just, they're just awards, you know, and oftentimes they don't go, they don't go to the right people. And I think, you just have to kind of be at peace with that, or that's at least just me. Um, so we'll move on to the NBA, talk about the Celtics. Um, obviously, the coaching search is continuing. You know, I heard that uh, the Celtics have finished interviewing internal candidates, so assuming that that means some assistant coaches. But, you know, I think that it makes sense that this search needs to be expansive because I think you really want to make sure you find the right guy. Um, because I think the Celtics are at a really key point in the franchise that you have Brad Stevens, who's now, you know, in that front office with major amount of power. And I think that I have confidence that he'll make the right decision because he knows the team and he knows the team's DNA and knows, you know, what works and what doesn't. And maybe he can find a better, a better person to communicate with the team, um, And I don't really want to hear people saying, like, oh, he's not qualified or, oh, like, he doesn't know what he's doing. It's just, like, 
I'm sorry, you don't become a coach if you don't have some idea of like what of how like a team works. It just seems preposterous to me that there are some people making that argument where he's like, oh, he's not qualified. It's like, I don't know. It just seems like it's it's oddly personal if you're going to say something like that. But, you know, anyway, I think that there are a lot of there are a lot of options. I'd be very surprised if the Celtics do hire someone internally because I think that, you know, Brad Stevens and the assistant coaches are the, the assistant coaches are an extension of Brad, I think, to a certain extent. And so, you know, if the players maybe perhaps didn't want to listen to Brad, I don't know if it makes sense to hire someone from that same coaching staff. I also think there's something to be said for this team getting a completely fresh perspective, you know, on their bench. And I think a coach is a really huge, huge decision that I think you cannot afford to to, to screw up, so to speak. Um, So I think that, you know, and I've said this before, I think that there are plenty of guys that I think would be good fits. I think Sam Cassell and Chauncey Billups kind of are at the top of my list. Uh, Chauncey is an assistant coach of the Clippers, and then you have Sam Cassell, an assistant uh, with the 76ers. Celtics are also talking to uh, Darvin Ham and Charles Lee, who are assistant coaches with the Bucks. Jamal Mosley, who's an assistant with the Mavs, and Aime Udoka, who is an assistant for the Nets. So the Celtics have asked permission to speak with those guys. Um, and it seems like Chauncey Billups is on the Celtics interview list. So um, I think that Cassell and Billups are great calls, but I think all those guys I mentioned, you know, would make sense too. I think almost all those guys are former NBA or former players that have played in the league fairly recently. So I think that that's the biggest thing is you want to find a coach who's a good communicator, someone who... I think has has played in the league, has had some success in the league, and, you know, can relate to the younger players. And, you know, in this day and age, NBA coaches are different. It's not the, I think I said this last week or two weeks ago, it's not the rah-rah, like yelling at your players to motivate them. That's not really how you coach now. Um, even though I think some people want Brad Stevens, wanted Brad Stevens to do that, that's not how you coach in the NBA. I hate to tell you that. Um so, you know, it's someone that has to be a motivator, but also has to be someone that can relate to the players, not just on the basketball court, but off the court. You know, someone that has to understand what maybe some of the young guys are going through. So, you know, it's, I think it's a big responsibility for Brad, but I think that no one knows the team better than him. I think, you know, I think that you, maybe you could say Danny, but Brad Stevens is with that team. He was with that team every day. So, you know, I think that who better to pick the next coach than the guy that used to coach them. So, you know, I think that they're going to take this very seriously and very meticulously because I think that, yeah, you want to make sure that you make the right decision. Because if you make a a quick decision that's hasty, you know, you could really, you could really screw up the franchise. So I think that it makes sense for them to take as much time as they can. But I also think at the same time, you know, you want to make a decision with with some urgency. I think that that makes sense. Um, so other than the coach, you know, the Celtics had some interesting news that came out. Now, you know, I'm not really sure if this is a legitimate report. I don't mean to say it like that, but I think me personally, if I don't, if I don't see a report that's from um, Woj or Shams, 
I'm I'm like don't know if I'm a, if I'm like ready to believe it with a hundred percent you know accuracy. So there was a report that Kemba Walker and the Celtics are looking at you know a potential split up, and I think that it's been frustrating for Kemba because I think his two years with the Celtics have been you know overshadowed by injuries, and I think that you know at the time. Yeah, they signed him to a pretty big contract, and no, it's not it's not a great contract now. Um, because I think that, yeah, he's not totally been healthy, you know, his whole time here. And I think that it's, it's unfortunate. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the Celtics are looking at that contract, and it's, it's pretty ugly, you know. And it's something that I think is going to be really hard to get out from under, you know, unless you're willing to eat some salary, Um I don't know if there's a team that they could trade him to. Um, you know, I think maybe as the playoffs finish and regular and free agency gets closer, some teams might realize, oh, maybe we need a point guard. Um, but I just I think you're going to have a hard time trading him unless you can, unless you're willing to eat some salary. So um, I think that though you do want to see if you could get something for him and not just get rid of him as just an afterthought because I still think he's a pretty solid NBA player. Maybe he just would be a better fit on a different team. Um, but I think that, yeah, you want to be smart about that if you are going to trade him. Um, it's It'll be interesting. You know, I think that could the Celtics use that as part of a, a package to get another player that makes, you know, a similar amount of money? I think that that would be very difficult. Um, but I think that, you know, maybe you see if you can do something like that before you just completely give up and say, Let's just trade him for a bag of basketballs because he's still an effective player. You know, he's still a good basketball player. He's not just like some guy who just like isn't good. Like he made the all-star team two years ago. So, um, or last year, excuse me. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting that that, you know, has come out. I think that perhaps maybe there'll be some teams that think that they could use a point guard and could the Celtics, you know, maneuver some type of trade, but they're going to have a hard time trading the the big contract that Kemba has. So, you know, those are kind of two of the biggest Celtics stories. You know, I think when you think about the team in the offseason and what's going to happen, you know, I think that um, the Celtics do have, I don't want to say roster spots, but they do have a couple of exceptions that they could bring in some maybe older veteran guys and maybe, It'd be interesting to see if certain guys like Ojale or Luke Cornett return. I would be very surprised. Um, and so I think um, with the NBA also announcing that next season they'll be back to normal with a season that starts in October, you know, you probably see the Summer League back. And I think that would be a big opportunity for Aaron Neesmith, Peyton Pritchard, and some of those young guys to get some time. But I really think that for the Celtics to use guys like uh, Carson Edwards, for example, and, and Waters and, and Taco Fall, it's, I just, I think that they're players that I think have tried, but I just think it's pretty obvious that I think those three guys in particular, I don't really think they need to come back. You know, I think that Taco, fans love him, obviously. He made some tremendous strides this season. You know, he looked like a much better player, but... I think at a certain point, a project player is a project player, and unless you're going to give them 
significant minutes, it doesn't make sense to bring him back. And I think that, you know, Waters, credit to him. He's an undersized guy, has always played with great amount of energy. You know, but I just don't think that there's a spot for him in the NBA. Um, and I kind of say the same thing about Edwards. You know, I think the Celtics were hoping that he could be someone that come off the bench and score points, but he's rarely been able to do that on a consistent basis. You know, really his biggest accomplishment with this team was hitting seven threes in a preseason game. You know, so I think that they're guys who could be tremendous assets in the G League, but I just think for an NBA roster, the Celtics kind of don't really need them. And it's not a big deal with Taco and Tremont because they don't count against, you know, the roster limit. So, you know, they're two-way players. So in theory, Celtics could bring them back as guys that they could use. But I just think that, again, you want to bring guys off the bottom of the bench or end of the bench that are older older veteran players that you know what you're going to get. Or they're just older veteran guys that you can just have around to counsel the young players. And I think that the Celtics are in a spot where that's going to be better than having a bunch of young players who you don't really know what to expect from them. Um, and you're not going to give them playing time. You know, I've said this time and time again, rather have older veterans who are not going to get many minutes versus young players who don't really, don't really know what it's like to compete at the NBA level on a consistent basis. Um, so I think taking a look at the NBA playoffs and taking a look at um, each of the each of the uh, series that are still going on, you had a couple of good games last night. You had Brooklyn and Milwaukee going down to the wire. Bucks win eighty six to eighty three. Chris Middleton and uh, Kevin Durant trading buckets really um, for most of that fourth quarter, uh, but the Bucks hold on. That series is now two games to one. It really looked like Brooklyn is going to run away with this series with a couple of impressive wins in the first two games. But uh, James Harden has been out the last two games with a hamstring injury. So uh, the Bucks played really good defensively in that game. Uh, Durant and Kyrie Irving did not shoot particularly well, but obviously, you know, still almost won the game. But again, biggest thing for the Bucks is getting, you know, consistent play from the other guys. Chris Middleton, um, Drew Holiday, Brent Forbes, uh, Brooke Lopez, you know, they got to get that consistency from other guys if they're going to, you know, win this series and go far. Um, so the Jazz beating Clippers again last night, two games to none. You know, credit to the Clippers for winning that series against Dallas, but um, I think that it's clear to see that Utah is a little bit deeper than the Clippers, and I think that, you know, watching what Jordan Clarkson did last night um, should have some teams worried about trying to defend Utah. You know, when you have a guy like that who can come off the bench and can honestly get 25 points pretty much any night, that's a little bit scary. So Utah's up two games to nothing, but a lot can change when you um, switch venues. So I think that expect the Clippers to come back and win a game three. If they don't, I think the series is over. Um, For Milwaukee, I think they're in a very similar spot as the Celtics were in the first round. You know, you have a good emotional response and win a game three, but you have to win that next game or else it kind of is a moot point. So I think the Bucks' biggest game of their season coming up in game four. Um, and then Utah, you know, I think just keep doing what you're doing, keep playing through Donovan Mitchell and, you know, hope for the best. Mitchell's been incredible in the first two games against the Clippers. Um, but obviously it takes four wins to win a series and 
You saw that with Dallas. You know, they were able to win the first two games in 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 LA. Couldn't win a home game, you know, and that's really why they lost the series. So, you know, I think for, for Utah, it's taking advantage of a road game, you know, and I think, honestly, there's kind of a, a saying that goes that a series doesn't truly start until the road team wins a game. So, um, obviously, with both of these series, the road team hasn't won yet. So, uh, things to get really interesting with those two games that I'm assuming are Saturday. We'll take a look at the uh, schedule in a moment. And then as far as the other two series, you have Philadelphia and Atlanta, who split the first two games. Atlanta's really holding their own. You know, credit to Trey Young, credit to, you know, that team. And, you know, the coaching changes worked wonders for them. And you know, I was saying this to someone the other day that you're seeing the maturation process of Trey Young right, right, in, front of, right in front of your eyes. You know, you're seeing him mature into a NBA superstar and a guy that, can carry a team you know he's been doing a tremendous job you know passing the ball and I think that there are a lot of people that didn't think that he was going to be able to make much of a difference in the NBA but credit to him credit to that team they're giving the Sixers all they can handle um, so game three of that series is tonight series is tied 1-1 Atlanta really kind of turned that series turned the uh, first round series against the Knicks around with some home wins. So I think this, this game will be very interesting to see how they do against the Sixers. Um, Philadelphia was able to get a win in game two, almost came back in game one. Uh, Atlanta really almost gave that game away with a lot of mistakes down the stretch, but um, that will be an interesting game tonight. And then you get Phoenix and Denver game three is tonight. Phoenix is up two games to none really has not had much trouble with Denver in the first two games. So um, Phoenix just is not a team that is going to blow you away with multiple guys that can score 35 points a game. Um, you know, Chris Paul is turning back. I mean, I don't want to say turning back the clock because Chris Paul's always been a tremendous player, but he is playing at such an unbelievable level right now. Um, and you have a guy like Devin Booker who honestly is capable of scoring 35 a game, but he's not someone that necessarily needs to because the Suns are getting great production out of Chris Paul. They're getting great production out of DeAndre Ayton, um, Jay Crowder, and some guys off the bench. So, you know, really thought that, okay, Booker's going to need to, like, score 30 a game, but he's not needing to do that. Phoenix is playing some really good team basketball. Um, they're, I think, in my opinion, I think that they have Denver on the ropes. Um, you know, I think that Denver was able to get consistent performances from the bench guys or, you know, guys that weren't named Jokic in the first round, but they're getting exposed, I think, not having a guy like Jamal Murray who can bail them out. So um, this is a make-or-break game for Denver tonight. So um, Phoenix has been a team that has really played really, has played very, very well in the playoffs. You know, and I said this last week, you know, that they did absolutely take advantage of Anthony Davis being hurt, but I think that there are some teams that would kind of let their guard down, um, and the Suns didn't. They played some really good basketball, and they played great basketball to open this series um, against Denver. So Game 3 is tonight, um, and then on Saturday, Utah and the Clippers will play Game 3 from L.A. Um, and then Monday night, Brooklyn and the Bucks will play in Game 4. So just some other NBA notes Five NBA players are up for 
the uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Social Justice Award, um, which is a new award that was named named for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a uh, player that best embodies uh, Kareem's message of civil rights, black empowerment, and racial equality. Uh, so Carmelo Anthony, Harrison Barnes, Drew Holiday, Tobias Harris, and Juan Toscano Anderson are the finalists for the award NBA had announced uh, earlier today. So um, tremendous award that that is up. I think that that's going to be something to keep your eye on, but all five of those guys have done a tremendous job. So um, whoever wins, you know, kudos to them. But I think that taking a look at what those guys have done, have done what the NBA has done, I think is um, something to, to really be proud of. Um, so, you know, I think the Clippers being down 2-0 is not um, something that Kawhi Leonard's t- too concerned about, seems like, or he had said after game two that they have a lot of fight left. So, uh, we'll see if that's the case. Utah and the Clippers play Game 3 Saturday night, and then obviously you have two Game 3s tonight, Philadelphia and Atlanta from Atlanta, um, and then Phoenix and Denver from Denver. Both of these games are on ESPN tonight. So I think we will move on, talk about some Red Sox. The Red Sox with a 12-8 win against Houston last night. A couple of homers for... J.D. Martinez and Christian Arroyo, both of them going deep. Uh, the Red Sox scoring six or five runs in the sixth inning um, to beat the Astros 12-8, to salvage a game in their three-game set. Uh, obviously, the Red Sox had dropped uh, three or four to Houston um, when we spoke last week, but then the Red Sox, you know, come out and have a great sweep against the Yankees and... Um, Got some good starting pitching, got some timely hitting, big-time hits um, in that 10-inning win against the Yankees on Sunday Night Baseball. So Red Sox with a road sweep in New York, first time since 2011, I think. Um, And the Red Sox, you know, have had a lot of trouble in New York the last couple of years, Um, but they get a number of three big wins that I think really help them in the standings and help push the Yankees down. Um, Then the Red Sox beat the Marlins in a makeup game on Friday, so they had won four straight. Coming into a couple games against the Astros, where the starting pitching was uh, really had a tough time, um, but then they you know come back and win last night. Houston has been a thorn in the side for the Red Sox. Red Sox are uh, two and five against the Astros in seven games this season, and you know Houston as whatever you want to say about them about the the cheating and whatever. If you think their pitching isn't good enough, they're still a team that should scare you with what they can do offensively. So, um, you know, good for the Red Sox to get a win last night, but I think that this is not a team that you want to be playing in the playoffs. This is a team that you really want to avoid because I think that, you know, what they can do up and down that lineup is just scary. I mean, I think they're the deepest team. They're the deepest offensive team in baseball, in my opinion. People might disagree with that. Might say the Dodgers, might say the Padres, but you know, based on what I've seen, I think that Houston is a team that is not a team to be taken lightly. But good on the Red Sox. Get that win, 12-8. to eight. Um, A couple big hits from Bobby Dahlbeck. Obviously, had Arroyo with a three-run homer. Um, and then Martinez. So Red Sox win 12-8. to eight. Um, It was another tough outing for Eduardo Rodriguez. Unfortunately, as he gave up, I think, six runs in four and two-thirds. So... 
you know, I think that, again, it's kind of, I don't want to say treading water again, but, you know, the Red Sox lose three straight to Houston, then they win four straight, um, or five straight, excuse me, because they won that last game in Houston um, about a week ago. Um, so they had won five straight games before losing those two to the Astros, but then they bounce back and win. Red Sox will play a four-game set this weekend against Toronto. So we'll take a look at the standings in a moment. But the Red Sox, you know, currently in second place. We've been hovering around there for the last couple of weeks. But, you know, thanks to some wins against the Yankees and some losses by them and Toronto, the Red Sox have, um, have a little bit of breathing room in second place. But, um, again, I think that the Red Sox did a good job in this game, you know, getting some timely hits. You know, I think that they're a team that offensively, they're really dangerous and they're really never out of any game, which is which is great to see. Um, and I think that, you know, starting pitching has really helped them in the first part of the season where I think that, you know, you really could not get almost any consistent starting pitching last season. And it's just kind of like you've gotten some guys who have gotten into a groove. You know, Richards and Pavetta have pitched pretty well. Um, you know, you didn't you didn't really have guys last year that you could really count on in the rotation. So, you know, I think that it's just a simple, a simple fix. You know, I think that uh, when you look at what the Red Sox were able to do in New York, you know, able, able to get solid enough pitching that they were able to stay in games um, and then able to, you know, break games open as they did as uh, Dahlbeck, I think hit a two run home run in the second game in New York. Um, and then obviously the offense picked them up after the bullpen had given up the lead or had uh, allowed the Yankees to tie the game in that extra inning game. Obviously, the Red Sox did totally get helped by a missed strike three call um, at the at the end of the Yankees' ninth inning. It was pretty bad. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it was, it was a good call. Uh, so, you know, definitely not going to put my Red Sox blinders on and tell you, oh, it was a great call. Now it was a terrible call. The Red Sox really got a huge... Um, you know, really, really were helped by that. Um, but then we're able to get some timely hits in the 10th inning and hang on for the win. So, um, you know, good on the Red Sox for that win, beating the Marlins. You know, unfortunate losing two out of three to Houston, but at least you're able to take a game. And then maybe you can take advantage of this Toronto team that has kind of uh, struggled recently. So the Red Sox hoping that Chris Sale can return sometime soon. He's been at Fenway the last couple of games. I think he threw a bullpen session not too long ago. So, you know, that might tell you that maybe he's close to being someone that can return, you know, probably maybe in the next month or two. You know, obviously he's not going to return like in the next week. It's not going to be anything like that. Um, but I think just having him around the team, you know, I think should help them. And I think really should give a big boost to the starting pitching you know, if he can come back sometime soon, you know, maybe around the trade deadline so that you can, you know, bring in a new pitcher. I mean, I still think the Red Sox should be a team that should be active at the trade deadline, you know, considering how much they've overachieved to this point of the season. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, you want to start thinking about it in the next couple of weeks because the Red Sox have really, you know, pitched themselves into contention to be perfectly honest. So I think you might as well just take advantage of that. Um, but I wouldn't expect that they're going to, you know, go all in and make some, you know, crazy-ass trades, that they're just going to 
you know, deplete the farm system because obviously Heim Bloom's not going to do that. That's not why he was brought in. He's not Dave Dombrowski. But um, I think that that's going to be very interesting to see what they do with the deadline, you know, seeing where where they try to make some improvements. Obviously, that's a couple of – that's uh, almost two months away, but we'll definitely get Eric Bellier in to uh, talk about the trade deadline at some point. So, you know, good stuff for the Red Sox continuing to win. Alex Verdugo has been uh, – playing really well, hitting really well, and, you know, it's leading some people to maybe forget a little bit about Mookie Betts. Now, you know, Mookie obviously is Mookie, and, you know, he doesn't just, he's not just a good hitter. You know, he's an unbelievable all-around player. Might be one of the best all-around players in the game. Um, But I think that, you know, Verdugo has really been impressing this season. I think he's really been doing really, really well offensively, gives you a little bit of defense, and, you know, is was, you know, really the major part of that trade. And obviously people are still upset about Mookie's trade. And, you know, I am too. It's, you know, unfortunate, but it's good that the Red Sox have been able to get good production out of Verdugo. And he's been a guy who's really been a a big-time force in, in their offense. You know, when you think about Bogarts, Martinez, Endeavors, and Verdugo, you know, you got four guys right there who have been outstanding. Um, you know, one of the issues for the Red Sox this season doesn't have anything to do with Verdugo, but it really struggled to get a consistent leadoff hitter. Um, you know, I think that that's the one concern that I kind of have with this team right now, that I think they don't have someone who can consistently hit leadoff and, you know, get on base. Kike Hernandez has, you know, mostly been doing that, but it's he's not really been getting, off, getting on base consistently enough. So um, I wouldn't be surprised... You know, if we, you know, go back to the trade deadline. If the Red Sox try to find someone that maybe can solidify, can solidify that role. Um, because, I mean, geez, they brought in Danny Hernandez or Danny Santana, you know, who's, who's, who's been hitting leadoff sometimes. So, you know, I think they really need to find some consistency there. Um, so... I think just taking a look at, at some statistics um, offensively, you know, I think that obviously you got the big guys with uh, Bogarts leading the team in hitting. You have Devers leading the team in home runs and RBIs. Um, then Martinez, you know, is I think cooled off after his like amazing start, but he's still hitting pretty pretty well. Um, and then you have Verdugo, so you have four guys right there, and you have Hunter Renfro, who's you know really started to come on in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, Dahlbeck has given you some hits recently, you know, he's still struggling to find that consistency, um, making contact, you know, which is, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's a little frustrating because that's kind of what I thought was going to happen that, you know, he's going to be a guy that sure is going to drive in some runs time to time. He's going to hit some home runs, but you know, more often than not, he's going to strike out or not get on base. So you know, I think that hopefully he just continues to stay positive with it and, you know, things will change, but, you know, he's hitting 192. So um, hopefully something can change, uh, but it's it's something that I think, you know, they're going to they're gonna need to monitor. You know, I think it's something, again, I think to monitor as they get closer to the trade deadline. You know, do you want to bring in someone who can play first base and maybe can you know, split duties with him, someone who can consistently hit, 
um, and, you know, not hit 192. So, you know, looking at the pitching, you know, you have Evaldi who's pitched fairly well. You know, I think that he's a guy who, you know, most of the time, you know what you're going to get, but then sometimes he can kind of not be as good. You know, Pavetta has over, has um, definitely overachieved, but he's pitched really well. But then you have guys like uh, Rodriguez, who has really struggled to find any type of momentum or any type of really positive momentum in the last couple of starts he's had. His ERA is now over six. Um, and Garrett Richards has been a little off and on, but I think that he's mostly been pretty solid, as has Martin Perez. Um, but the good news is, I mean, they've gotten all their starters. They've rolled their starters so that, you know, no one's really missed a start yet. So that's at least a positive. Um, then the bullpen, you know, I think it is what it, it's going to be what it's going to be. You're not going to be perfect every time, but I think that, you know, you've had Sal Mura, who's been fairly solid. He was really good in that Yankees series. Um, and you have Ottavino, who's really come on in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, Matt Barnes, too, who's been the closer and has been uh, really excellent. I think, you know, 14 saves, a 263 ERA, and a strikeout per nine innings rate of 15.5, which is really, really good. So, you know, thing, things are mostly good for the Red Sox. You know, I'd be curious to see how they do in the next few weeks and then, you know, how they approach the trade deadline um, as we take a look at their schedule. So, obviously, there is four games set against the Blue Jays at Fenway that starts tonight. So, four games against Toronto, and then the Red Sox will travel to Atlanta, Kansas City, and Tampa Bay for a what looks like an eight-game road trip. So that's what is coming up next. Red Sox to Atlanta, to Kansas City, go visit old friend Andrew Benintendi for a three-game set, and then they will play a three-game set against Tampa Bay. And then that will almost take us to the end of June when the Red Sox will host the Yankees at Fenway. So taking a look at the MLB standings, getting to kind of MLB as a whole, the Red Sox currently stand just a game back of first place, but do have a quite a bit of breathing room. Um, as the Yankees are in third, they are six back of first place, and then Toronto is six and a half. So the Red Sox have a pretty good amount of breathing room there. As uh, Tampa Bay continues to be atop the division, they've been playing really, really well. But the Red Sox, you know, continuing to be there. Road record is really strong. You know, home record probably could be better, but it is the home best home record in the, in the division. And the Red Sox have done really well in the division. So um, that is, you know, good to see that the Red Sox are continuing to play some good baseball, um, have a pretty good run differential. It's fourth best in the American League. If the White Sox in first place in the Central, they get a pretty hefty, hefty lead over, the, over Cleveland, four and a half games in first. In the West, you have Oakland and the, Oakland and the Astros that have been kind of going back and forth recently. Uh, Athletics at the moment have a one-game lead on Houston. In the National League, the uh, Mets have started to uh, break away from the pace a little bit as they have won, uh, or as they are three and a half games in ahead of second place Philadelphia. So the Mets are in first place in the East. You have the Brewers who are now tied with the Cubs for first place in the Central. Brewers have won eight out of ten, um, so they're playing some good baseball recently. Um, and Chicago, you know, I think has had a pretty solid year so far. Uh, St. Louis, the Cardinals have fallen back a little bit as they are three games back 
of first place, just two wins in their last 10. Um, and then the Giants still ahead in the West, a game and a half ahead of the Dodgers, two and a half against, or two and a half ahead of the Padres. Um, so obviously, big story in baseball is the, um, you know, cut down on the uh, illegal foreign substances, which, you know, I'll be honest, like, probably a better conversation to have with someone like Eric Bellier in terms of, you know, what exactly is going on. But, you know, basically, the baseball believes that a lot of pitchers are using different kinds of substances to gain an advantage and, you know, could be the reason why you're seeing all these no hitters. So, you know, Major League Baseball trying to crack down on on these things. So that's kind of been the big story. I think that um, there might be some, you know, guidelines that might be coming out from Major League Baseball in the next few days. So, you know, it's, you know, I think it, it is what it is. Like, I don't really have a take on it necessarily. I mean, obviously, like, it's not really, it's not really good for the game because you don't want people to be, you know, cheating. But I'll be perfectly honest, cheating is a part of baseball. You know, whether whether you like it or not, you know, it's a pretty big part of the game. You know, when you think about scandals, you think about steroids, you think about stuff like this. I mean, it kind of is part of the game. You know, I think that, yes, it's legit that, you know, you want the game to be as clean as possible. You don't want people cheating. But, you know, it's pretty hard to ignore the elephant in the room that people have been cheating in baseball for you know, a hundred years, probably more than that. So, you know, I'm not going to say that like, oh, it's okay because it's really not, you know, I think that obviously you want a fair playing field. That's legit. But at the same time, you can't ignore that cheating is a part of baseball. You know, it kind of is a part of sports. I mean, that's kind of just what it is. Not saying that it's a good thing or a bad thing, but you know, it is what it is. So um, that's kind of just it for, for, for baseball thoughts. I think we'll get into the Patriots next in the NFL. So the Patriots, obviously, with uh, offseason, with OTAs and minicamps, so um, been mostly good. You know, I think it's a time of year that everyone is excited about their team. You know, I think the Patriots are a team that, um, coming off last season, are really going to be motivated. And I think you've seen guys be motivated in camp. You know, I think it's great to see Dante Hightower was back on uh, the practice field the other day and just great to have his presence back on this team. You know, I think the Patriots really, really missed him last season um, in terms of, you know, his ability, but also his, you know, leadership role and being someone who has been a stable force on that defense for many years. So I think that, you know, having him back, having him back in the swing of things, it's going to take a little bit. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some rust in his game at at this point in the preseason, regular season, you know, first couple of weeks of the season, probably wouldn't be surprised. But I think that the biggest thing for him is, you know, being that leader or being a leader and being one of those, one of those players that the younger players look to, because I think linebacker is a position that, yes, the Patriots have upgraded, bringing in guys like Matt Judon, bringing back Kyle Van Noy, but they also have some young linebackers, Josh Uche, Chase Winovich, uh, Anthony Jennings, just to name a few that I think really benefit from having a vet guy who's, you know, seen it all, been through it all, has won three Super Bowls, 
um, you know, means a lot to the Patriots organization and really, you know, understands what it is to be a consistent pro at the NFL level. So I think that it's only a good thing that he's back. You know, I think that that really is such a positive to have a, you know, vet guy like that around who, you know, not only is a great leader, but also is a player that still can help you out, still can also be a pretty solid player. So, you know, I think that linebacking group, linebacker group is going to be really fascinating to watch this season and in training camp and in preseason, you know, how the leadership role works and, you know, how maybe some of the young guys might do. Really curious to see how that works. And, you know, obviously a lot of eyes have been on, have been on Mac Jones, but, you know, I think the Patriots are taking it very slowly with him, which I think is smart. You know, I think a lot of people just want to thrust him into the starting role and say, oh, you know, Cam sucks, you know, this and that. You don't draft a first-round QB if you're not going to play him. But, you know, I think that the Patriots drafting Jones with the idea that they are going to develop him slowly. And, you know, look, someone's not just going to come right in and be an unbelievable, you know, alpha-type guy that's going to change your franchise. The Patriots aren't drafting Mac Jones to do that. Yes, they're drafting him to be the quarterback of the future, but they're not drafting him as a guy that needs to come in day one and play because, you know, the quarterback situation is in shambles because that's usually what happens when teams draft quarterbacks first overall because they need someone. You know, did the Patriots need someone? Yes, but I also think that it's not like they're looking for Mac Jones to come in and win the job in training camp or it's his job to lose because... I don't think the Patriots need to be in that position. You know, I think that they've built a roster on this team that is going to be really good, whether Cam's the quarterback or whether he's not. You know, I think that the Patriots have a lot of confidence in Cam. I think Bill Belichick clearly does. You know, why else would he bring him back and say that it's really his job, you know, maybe without coming out and saying it uh, specifically. But I just think that you're going to see Cam Newton be better this year. And I think, you know, we talked about it last week that Josh McDaniels had a lot of positive things to say, that he is, you know, picking up the offense a little bit better. He's had a lot more time, and it's legit. He has. He came in June last year in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, got COVID during the season. So it's like it really was an uneven year for him. But the fact that he's back now, and yes, okay, did hurt his hand. Belichick thinks that he's going to do fine. But, you know, I think that, you should be excited about this team. I think that there are too many people that are getting, you know, concerned because of the way that Cam played last year, but you have to consider what he went through last year. You know, we've talked about it all before, you know, with a receiving receiving core that really was one of the worst in the league last year. You had Cam that came in with a truncated preseason or a truncated uh, training camp, no preseason, got COVID in the middle of the season, you know, it's like, I don't know how you can expect that he's going to be, you know, unbelievable. And, you know, I think that the offense is going to be better this year. The Patriots are going to be a lot more reliant on the tight ends because they have two tight ends that are really good and really talented. The Patriots were barely running out NFL talent at tight end last year, you know, and I think to a lesser extent, a wide receiver too, you know, so I think, it's fair to have concerns, but I also think that you have to also be, you know, you have to consider certain things. So, you know, I think that it's, 
it's it's fine that Mac Jones is maybe not getting, you know, all the reps, but I think like you're going to try to develop him slowly and I think that that's the best thing that you can do, you know, with this team. So, I think it's it's exciting. It's exciting that this, you know, Patriots team has come in and retooled and, you know, I think that if all goes according to plan, the Patriots could challenge for an AFC East title and really could fly under the radar this season which I think is is only good for this team, you know, that there's not going to be all this, you know, crazy spotlight attention that, you know, if Tom Brady was still here would would be a thing. The Patriots are, I think, only going to be on national TV once or twice. So it really gives them an opportunity to be a team that can fly under the radar. And I think that they kind of like it that way. Um, with a lot of chip on their shoulder, we have a lot to prove and prove that last season was just a fluke. So, yeah, I think that there's a lot to be said for that. So, good stuff from the Patriots and potential new Patriot. Julio Jones did not get traded to the Patriots, got traded to the Titans last week. The Titans doling out a couple of draft picks, which is kind of what I expected. But, holy cow, does this make this Titans offense probably one of the, if not the most dangerous offense in the league. Now, I know Kansas City is is terrifying with you know, Mahomes. I know that Baltimore is terrifying with Lamar Jackson. And I know that Tampa Bay is very good with Tom Brady, who, you know, probably will play like this till he's 50. Um, But you have this Tennessee team with Julio Jones, one of the best receivers in the game still, and Derrick Henry, who's arguably the best running back in the league. So, you know, good luck trying to defend them. The Patriots have to yeah, it's not it's not going to be fun with the with that defense trying to defend them. But hey, it could be a fun game. You know, I think that you got to kind of pick your poison, but good luck with that with with Tennessee this year. So, uh they'll be definitely an interesting team to watch. Um obviously with that addition, but I think that it starts and ends in Tennessee with that defense. And sure the offense can be a, a juggernaut, but if their defense plays the way they did last year, they're not going to beat. They're not going to really be a team that I think can challenge for the AFC. I, I honestly don't think so. I think that their defense really let them down last year. Um, and offensively, yeah, they got let down in that playoff game. But I thought that Baltimore played an unbelievable defensive game in that game. So, you know, I think Tennessee again. It comes down to the defense if they're going to be a legit contender in the AFC and a contender for the Super Bowl. So um, just some other notes in the NFL. Um, the uh, Russell Wilson had said the other day that he actually denies requesting a trade from Seattle. I think there were some rumors a couple months ago that he had possibly wanted out, but it makes it clear that he does not want out and he wants to be there. Uh, Kyler Murray made an interesting comment yesterday about being open to playing baseball. So curious if that, you know, ever materializes for him as he was obviously a, a very good baseball player and actually got drafted onto the Oakland A's and I think showed up for, for, for spring training this year, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I think that, you know, that's kind of interesting. The, uh, yeah, I mean, they're interesting quarterback uh, competitions I think in in Washington and in New Orleans, obviously there's the big changes for the for the Saints without Drew Brees being there. So that'll be interesting to see what happens with both of those franchises. Um, so 
I think that that probably does it for football. We'll move on to the WNBA. We've had um, a couple couple games tonight. Seattle against Atlanta and then Dallas against Phoenix. Games at 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock. You have uh, Connecticut that is still at the top of the East. Seattle at the top of the West. You know, top teams are doing really well. New York, obviously, fun to watch. So uh, keep an eye on this. Um with games tonight, there was a game last night. Washington beat Los Angeles 89-71. Um, and then you have some games on Saturday. L.A. against Minnesota, Chicago against Indiana. Um, so definitely, you know, keep your eye on watching some games here and there. Always try to catch some games that are on TV. Um, if they're on ESPN or ABC. Um, so... Uh, before we go, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of kind of a outside preview of the um, UEFA Euro, uh, UEFA European Championship uh, that gets underway this afternoon. There will be, I think, 10 or 11 different sites. Um, so, you know, basically just a championship for the European teams. So it's always an interesting tournament to watch. Obviously, there was they were supposed to play last summer, but obviously... For obvious reasons, got moved to this summer. So uh, there are 24 teams. I believe that there are six groups. So you know, similar to the World Cup, with kind of a knockout stage. Um, and then there, I think the I think it's the top two teams from each group. And then maybe there are some third place teams that also get in. So uh, the group turn the group play starts today. Italy against Turkey. So we'll take a look at the groups. So in Group A, it is Italy, Switzerland, Turkey, and Wales. In Group B, it is Belgium, Denmark, Russia, and Finland. Group C, Austria, Netherlands, Ukraine, North Macedonia. In Group D, Croatia, Czech Republic, England, and Scotland. Group E, Poland, Slovakia, Spain, Sweden. And then Group F, France, Germany, Hungary, and Portugal. That's probably going to be the... uh, so-called group of death as you have three teams that are pretty good there. Um, so, you know, France, a lot of people are thinking that they are a favorite. A lot of, some people think that uh, Italy can win. So uh, if you enjoy soccer, if you enjoy, you know, international tournaments, which weirdly enough, I kind of enjoy that, you know, I'm not really a big um, English Premier League person, you know, tried to watch some, some Chelsea games, you know, good to keep an eye on Pulisic. Um, who had a great tournament in the Nations League as Team USA beat uh, Mexico last weekend. So, you know, always fun to, to to check in on these tournaments. You know, it's like the World Cup. It's a lot of, you know, high-class high class foot, football, uh, which is a lot of fun to watch. So uh, Revolution are not back until next weekend. They are on an international break at the moment, but they will be back. Um, so yeah, we'll give you an update next week as they return to action. So that probably, that probably does it for this week's podcast. Everyone enjoy, uh, the weather. Hopefully it holds up. I think that tomorrow it might be rainy, but Sunday definitely get outside and hang out. You know, there's uh, no, no more playoffs for the local teams, unfortunately, but, uh, maybe get out, enjoy the weather, enjoy some time with family um, and just do some other stuff. But it's going to be interesting off-seasons for both the Celtics and the Bruins, so we'll keep you updated through all of it. All right, everyone, we will talk to you next week.